0: Broadcasting from the 10 Hudson Square Building, home of WNYC, Radio, in Soho, New York, welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies. My guest today is Matt Scanlon. Matt is co-founder and CEO of Notum, an apparel company that prides itself in selling the world's fairest cashmere. Founded in 2013, after a trip to Mongolia, which we will be talking about, Nodum ethically and sustainably produces its clothes as a way to help the environment and support local Mongolian communities, as well as, most importantly, challenge the ever-growing fast fashion industry. So when Matt isn't running Nodum, he spends his time overseeing, and I want to make sure I get this as accurate as possible, about 100 other projects and businesses. I thought I was a busy guy until I met Matt. So he's a general partner and co-founder of Magic Hour Ventures, which is a seed stage venture fund. And he's also CEO of Something Navy, a hugely popular fashion-based digital influencer space. And just stay with me here because I'm not done yet. He's also currently the CEO of Takoon, a direct-to-consumer fashion line based here in New York, as well as an investor in several companies such as Buffy, True Botanicals, Package Free, Menace Sparkling Tea, Fora, and Necessaire. And I'm out of breath now. So, Matt, welcome to Brand on Purpose, and thank you for coming in studio. I really appreciate it. It's Thanks great for to meet you.
1: Me. Thank you. thank you.
0: So seriously, I thought I was a busy guy until I met you. I thought I had a lot of jobs and roles, and then I met you.
1: You know, it sounds like it's a lot more than it actually is. The question I get all the time is like, how do you do all of that? And like I'm flattered people think that maybe I'm smart or something, but it really isn't that complicated. It's ultimately just the same thing over and over again. I'm like not a good learner, so I just need to know how to do one thing and then I just do it as widely or as kind of horizontally I stretch it as I can.
0: Well, you are very humble, that's for sure. Yeah, maybe. But I feel like you're pretty fanatical because you have to be fanatical to do this stuff even if it's the same thing over and over again in different formats even though I know you're selling yourself very short here. You are fanatical because that's an ingredient to success.
1: I would say I'm obsessive. Like I get addicted to things and the thing that I think is more fulfilling for me than anything else that definitely fills me up very fully is this ability to learn something and then teach other people or kind of share that experience. And yeah, like I try and do it humbly. I mean, I only, only have the things I've done. Definitely don't try and project, but you know, it's a constant learning experience and I'm obsessed with all of that, honestly
0: there's definitely a through line to all of your investments and your obsessions. And I want to start with not but then we're going to kind of bounce around here and there. It's a pretty cool founder story. Just for our listeners, tell us your version of that story.
1: Oof. Okay. Well, I'm going to do it like in a concise format. I'm going to try. So I was 23, 24 years old. I'm 30 now. Oh no, God, I'm 30. You're only 30. 31. Damn it.
0: Happy birthday. <laughs>
1: Thanks. So I was 23. I had quit a job here in New York that I hated and was unfulfilling. And um, what was the job? So I worked at a firm called creative, which was a private equity firm here in New York. And I actually never graduated from college. So I left school to join on the behest of a manager there. And basically, it was like getting my teeth pulled for three and a half years. It was pretty painful <laughs> stuff. It also didn't help that I... I'm not
0: laughing at your misery. I just appreciate your well, honesty.
1: It was pretty funny. But it wasn't for me. I wasn't I wasn't doing something that I loved, and I had this moment where I recognized that if I wasn't really passionate about the thing that I was doing, that I just wasn't going to be successful at it, and so I went out to find something I loved, but I I didn't really have any directive. I actually was planning to take some time off of work and just travel. I had spent a lot of time. I'd always been somebody who worked, started my own thing, and I had never taken some time off. Right. And so at like 23, because I was closer to 24, I said, okay, I'm going to take six months and I'm going to go travel around Asia. So I had put this trip together. I was going to go to Mongolia, which I'd heard was beautiful, and I was going to do some backpacking, then Beijing and Shanghai, and eventually I was going to make my way to Southeast Asia, where... We were going to go to like one of those full moon festivals and take ecstasy and I don't do drugs and I don't drink. So that never happened. Those experiences kind of never came to fruition for me.
0: It's too bad because I was really wanted to hear that story.
1: <laughs> yeah, me too. So ended up in Mongolia as the first stop. Didn't know anything. The second we got there, I met old college roommate of mine who was studying in Asia at the time and we got there and we were really overwhelmed. We were like, oh man, like we made a mistake. We shouldn't have come here. It was very, very foreign. And I think the most important part of my story is recognizing that I come from a middle, upper middle class family in Westport, Connecticut. I was a Jewish kid who really hadn't seen much in my life. There was a fist bump, just FYI. Can't see that.
0: Another fellow tribesman. got to stick together.
1: And so I hadn't really experienced any other cultures. Everything was very foreign to me. And ultimately I was very scared of those experiences. And so here I was in a place that everything was foreign. The language was different. Religion was different. Everything about the cultures, like upside down from what would make us feel comfortable right here. And so to make a long story short, was taken on what I thought was a day trip, turned into a month long stay in a very remote area of Mongolia in the Gobi Desert. And It was an overwhelming and very scary experience because I didn't bring clothing or food. I hadn't really planned to be there at all, but something happened. And I'm like definitely skipping over some important stuff, but I want to get to like the more important piece, which is the realization I had. So here I was in a place with no running water, no electricity, no speaking the same language. I would go hours without talking, but there was kindness and people were kind of taking care of me and I was scared. I was really, really scared, but... One day, I'm you know, like a week and a half in, I'm herding goats, which sounds crazy, but I was. I was instructed to kind of take goats out to pasture and um, walk you through the field, and the goats mix with another group of goats. That's bad. You're not supposed to let that happen. And I see this nomadic herder, this Mongolian nomadic herder, comes riding out on a horse, screaming, and he's yelling at me, and I don't know what he's saying, but I know he's angry. And it struck me that that was the first time I felt comfortable while I was there because I recognized what was happening. And so I boiled that down into this idea that, or this like moment of realization that all people kind of speak the same language. It doesn't matter if you're a nomadic herder or Mongolia or you work on Wall Street in New York. Ultimately, we're all the same. We all experience the human condition the same way. We smile when we're happy. We cry when we're sad. We yell when we're angry. That was familiar to me. And I kind of shifted my focus from finding the things that made us different to the things that made us similar.
0: And your fear dissipated
1: very quickly. And I kind of fell in love with these people in this culture, ended up leaving. I was with my business partner throughout that experience. I would say he was probably just as scared as I was. And we set out to start a nonprofit to support this community, invest in work that would improve animal health and through animal health, stabilize income in this region. Important note, Mongolia is a population of 3 million people, half of which are totally nomadic. They don't own homes, they don't own land, and they truly subsist off of animal husbandry. And the culture has been the same for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's really a beautiful thing.
0: So they're very connected, obviously, to animals, animal health. That's how they are prosperous, Is how they live, right? It's, their it's also like a
1: part of their religion, right? It's like shamanism, which is like basically this ideology that's focused on nature, and your surroundings, which makes sense. If you like are in the culture, you get that. In any event, we were investing in nonprofit work to hopefully stabilize these incomes for these communities. And uh, we failed because we didn't know what we were doing. But we saw something that led us to build the business we have today, which was that there were trade relationships that existed in these remote regions which were unregulated. And that deregulation served to out-leverage local communities And essentially, the traders, the middlemen, were the ones that make all the money. They buy at low prices, sell for high prices, and that's how the commodity market traded. And so we had expected prices for the product around the world, but that process screwed my friends. And so we set out to undo that. And so as the story goes, and this really did happen, we took $2.5 million on a private loan, transferred it to a bank account in Mongolia walked out of the bank carrying 32 plastic shopping bags full of money, trucked it into the Gobi Desert, drove 24 hours.
0: You had security with you, right?
1: Zero, which I get asked every time. (laughs) Like I said, not that smart. And we bought 60 tons of cashmere. We trucked it back in 16 approximately tractor trailers filled with raw material. And that's how we launched our brand. That was six years ago. It's been exciting.
0: So did you... Literally find like a white knight, an individual who you basically pitched on this idea and he or she, they said, yes, I'm going to back you.
1: Kind of. So we took this private loan initially as for a commodity trade. So we pitched it as we're buying a commodity. We know we could liquidate it. We know we could make money, 10 points or something off of it. Right. Because
0: you're buying it directly you are the middleman in effect without all the bad things that go along with
1: it. Well, just to like clarify that. So if you were a herder, traditionally a trader would come in and say, okay, everything you have is worth $2. I already know I have a buyer for 10. So I'm just trying to get the lowest price possible. We came in.
0: Because you're making money on the spread. That's right. right.
1: And so we came in, we said, you know what? We can pay four or five and still make money if we have to, but that will kind of stabilize... This income for people here. So, after we bought everything, what we started to recognize was there was actually more money to be made and just making a sweater, like watching the process all the way through, owning the brand, having that kind of transparency, vertical integration, we could build a much more impactful thing. However, I, I would say the thing that we shouldn't forget is that the reason I did this in the first place, the reason I still do it was I was just trying to build a platform to tell that story. I felt that that idea that we should look at our similarities, not our differences, is a very simple thing, but it's not something we think about. And I think most people around the world never get the opportunity to kind of have that realization, at least not in like a really meaningful way. So I just wanted to build a company. I didn't care what it did. Could have sold coal. It didn't matter to me. I just wanted a company that could tell that story.
0: Right. So fast forward to 2020. It's seven years later since you founded the company. A lot has gone on politically. There's a lot of lack of civil discourse, and it's probably the mildest, nicest way to, to state it. And a lot of it does have to do with identity and the rise of identity politics, hate. How are you feeling now in terms of that narrative? I mean, you're strong in your narrative, but everything's been going on. I think a message like that
1: is more important than it's ever been. And actually, my like overarching realization is that all of this has to do with timing. Like a business, like Notum may not have succeeded if it had happened any earlier. The reality is the first couple of years of our business, we were just figuring stuff out. We were kids. We were really dumb in a lot of ways, and we were learning by failure.
0: And to be clear, you knew nothing about the textile industry. Zero. Nothing about nothing.
1: I literally knew nothing about nothing.
0: Were you even like a fashion forward kind of guy? No. No.
1: No, not at all. No, I'm a goober. Like, I don't know, from (laughs) Westport, Connecticut. So a lot of our success has to do with timing. And sure, there are geopolitical Factors. There are obviously major economic factors, but ultimately, I chalk all of this up to changing consumer preferences, led by a generational shift in who the majority of consumers are today. When we first started, you know, my value system was the one with which led our brand development. Right. So I would go and I talk to people and I'd say, "Well, I want to build a brand about sustainability that has values and authenticity," and I would get pushback from investors and everybody else saying no one cares, kid, like just make it cost the right amount and product market fit and all this stuff. And my realization was that a consumer was coming of age. They were inevitably going to come into or hopefully come into the right economic power and they would be voting with more than their wallet. They'd be voting with their conscience to a certain degree. And I think that's largely come true. Obviously, the things we see here in the United States and across that geopolitical landscape, Internationally, I think it served us ultimately very well because we have a unique and authentic story to tell.
0: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a few seconds. From founding it in 2013, when was it that you felt like you finally found your momentum? You're able to figure out the retail aspect of it because you figured out the back end. You've already dramatically improved these individuals' lives in a matter of minutes, yeah. right? So you're taking, what, 16 tractor trailers out of the Gobi Desert. You're shipping, it's basically cashmere, right? It's, well, to back to the United States. Where did you manufacture, then? How did you put together a team to come up with not just the design, but also distribution, marketing, promotion, things like that?
1: Took a long time. I'd say the biggest challenge in our history has been people. The biggest mistakes I've made have been around people, and the biggest successes have come off of hiring the right people.
0: Very well said.
1: And finding the right partners. It comes down to that. Totally, right? There's a lot I can't do. And I'm very aware of that. And so our success is ultimately predicated on the ability to identify the holes in our knowledge, our information, our skill set, and find compliments in other people. And it wasn't until a couple of primary figures came around the table, either low levels or higher levels within the organization, that things started to unlock. The big picture of that is we figured out the simple thing, which is product market fit. So for any kind of consumer brand, even if you do have that message that resonates, if you don't have product market fit, it's hard to scale. And you know when you see it. We see brands all the time. like, oh my God, it's everywhere now. Everyone's wearing or, or whatever. I wish I did that. No, no, no. That's totally what it is. Yeah. And that, I think, drives that scale where it becomes something that you hear about all the time or you see all over the place. We didn't see that until we introduced the $75 sweater. For a long time, I fought that. I fought lower prices and I just because I didn't understand.
0: But still seventy five dollars sweater for that quality of cashmere is still very good. Because ordinarily that would be three, four, five hundred dollars, right? Yeah. But it took us a lot to get there. So what you wanted it to be like twenty five bucks?
1: I could have gone lower. I could have gone higher too, but People ask me, like, how'd you land on $75? I was like, oh, it just sounded good.
0: You didn't do some fancy market segmentation. No, I, I could
1: definitely like feed that line of bullshit right now, but that's not true. I had this instinct that if I could democratize the product, that one, it would fulfill my brand message, kind of the values of the organization, which are at its core about democratization, about equality, about kind of sharing culture and values across the planet. And but This was a product that would do the same thing, that it would take something that felt inaccessible and make it something that anybody could have. I wanted to do that with sustainability as well. You know, I felt that early on, sustainability was something that cost more money. And it still is in a lot of ways. That you hear it and you're like, oh well it's gonna cost more money because it's made sustainably. Well that's bullshit. Like that's not how it should work.
0: It's the same thing in the organic food market. There's like a good tax that's imposed on these things.
1: Well like if you make that something that's good for the world inaccessible, then it'll never have the impact that it should have. And coming from maybe it's a generational perspective, but we need solutions that everybody can afford. And if it's not affordable, then it doesn't really work. So it was when we kind of connected all of that and the product represented our value system and it became a scalable product that we started to grow very, very quickly. And so the business exploded literally and since then it's been about hiring and finding great team members and it gets easier and easier. I think the more brand awareness we get, the smarter the people reaching out to us are. So you like turn a corner or like you get to the top and then you start rolling down the other side. That's what it feels like.
0: It has this role, the Nottam role, has it, it sounds like it inspired everything else you're doing today, right? Whether it's full time or as an early stage seed investor.
1: Yeah. It's all based on experience. So the investing side came from, it was like a natural consequence of conversations I was having. Earlier stage founders were asking me questions like, oh, how'd you do that? How'd you find that person? Or what do you do now? And I always enjoyed that. I mean, I was, I was always like flattered. Like, I can't believe someone's asking me something. Like, how am I like the person with that information? And so I was eager to share. And eventually I'd see things and I'd say, well, that's actually like a really good idea you should get funding for this and came up with an opportunity to provide that funding in addition to the advice. And so the focus of our fund was, one, we want to find brands that are impacting the conversation the way Nautam was. So kind of moving consumer preferences with business. I didn't think consumers were going to be the ones that demanded necessarily that brands become more sustainable. Founders of these businesses were going to be the ones that created the option and I wanted to be the person that was helping fund those businesses to reach scale. So it's been a really exciting and fun journey. And I worked very closely with a lot of the businesses that we've invested in as best I can. You know, Fora, for instance, which is, you know, one of our earlier stage businesses, they work out of my offices so that I can be there as much as possible. Just
0: describe what Fora does, because looking through your portfolio, that one really stood out to me for so many different reasons.
1: I'm so happy about that too because Lucy Jones is the founder. I heard her talk. I think It was some sort of pitch event and I was like blown away. So eloquent, so smart and passionate. And she reminded me of myself at that early stage of like – you like really live and breathe the thing that you're building. And I'm not one of those investors that can understand like quant analysis and like market reason. I understand the person.
0: You can hire people to do that. Yeah. Well,
1: (laughs) no, that's what they do. No, it's true. It's very true. But like, I understood her and that felt like something I could support. And so their business is, uh, I think in its simplest format, creating functional products for people who are disabled or in wheelchairs. And they have a proprietary system that connects to all wheelchairs and then connect bags to those systems or cup holders or cups. And,
0: and it's fashion forward too. It shouldn't have to be ugly just because... And affordable. Exactly.
1: It's all of those things. And I recognize that that's what's important. You want to make people feel... I guess the biggest thing was this was a community. These were people who felt underserved. Nobody else was thinking about. And there's millions of them. And that's a, one, a big market opportunity, but two, an opportunity to do the right thing. And so... We got invested and we've worked really closely with her and it's been fun. I get to watch her like entrepreneurial journey. How did you meet her? At this pitch panel. Oh, She okay. was speaking and she like blew me away. So eloquent and like a perfect presentation. When I give a presentation or something, I just wing it. I'm like, oh, I don't, I'll just tell my story Is this again. It's like I guess. a
0: shark tank type style thing. Yeah. Something like that. And she was so
1: prepared and I was blown away.
0: But I mentioned it earlier, there's a through line to all of your investments and we'll talk about Takun as well, but everything seems very human centered to me. It comes from the heart and only because you mentioned you were raised Jewish, just like me. You know, in Judaism, there's this whole like battle between the heart and the mind. It's like the core precept behind, it, right? And I do think that if you lead with your heart, even though it might be harder, sometimes the mind will follow and good things happen.
1: For me, it's probably lack thereof. Like it's easier to understand people sometimes than it is process. And for other people, it's not, right? I think that that just happens to be where my strengths are. And so, you know, I've always thrived off of connecting people. That was the core of what nodom's business was about. Let's celebrate people. nodom literally means games. It's the name of a festival in Mongolia, which is a series of games where they celebrate culture and the people. And they're like traditional games. I just wanted to celebrate them. And the funniest thing is now people are wearing the sweaters and they're like, oh, what does the name mean? And I get the chance to tell people. So very full circle. But yeah, everything we do from a fund standpoint is definitely led by
0: who that entrepreneur is. Just kind of going back to Nam for a second. So it comes full circle, right? You probably go back to Mongolia a couple times a year?
1: Yeah, once or twice a year. Once for our buying season. So we're there in early May purchasing tons and tons of cashier and then later in the summer to check in on some of the nonprofit work that we began at the beginning of the summer.
0: And in the time that you've spent there, my guess is there are certain families that you've become very close with and individuals and you have literally before your eyes seen their lives transform based on this new model. I'm not trying to overstate it or make you know, I don't like to overstate
1: it generally because the first time I ended up there, it was such a humbling experience. Like, I was pathetic. Me ending up in the Gobi Desert, I
0: wouldn't have survived without them,
1: right? They looked at me, they're like, why aren't you, like, stronger? Why can't you ride a horse? Like, why can't you wrestle a goat?
0: You, what, you didn't learn how to wrestle a goat in Hebrew school? No,
1: actually. Mm, and it wasn't part of our curriculum Lamb, in Westport. But Passover. <laughs> it's a different type of wrestling. <laughs> and it was just very humbling. And so we always led with this idea that, like, we ask them for advice. It's not the other way around. That us providing help wasn't like to prove that we were stronger or smarter. It was, what do you guys need? You tell us. We'll work on the solution, but we're not going to come up with it. You know this better than we do. And so all the things we've implemented have come from the community, been developed and built by the community. So when we talk about like, oh, we've changed people's lives. Yeah, I think I only see that in the interactions, right? It's so funny. I go back there and These are like familial relationships. I've known them for a really long time. They've seen me at my weakest point.
0: And you've seen their kids grow.
1: Totally, totally. It's a very special thing. A weird, weird one as well. Not something I expected I'd be doing now, but beautiful nonetheless.
0: You mentioned earlier that you were there for a whole month. That wasn't the plan. Did you run out of money? Was it a spiritual thing? Was it just you had nothing else going on? Did your cell phone die? I mean, what happened? So a
1: couple important factors. Mongolia has no road infrastructure. There's no highway system. So we drove the distance of like Connecticut to Georgia in a day, and we didn't get there by roads. You off-roaded the whole time. So we just didn't know where we were. There was no cell phone service. It wasn't like a defined thing. We were literally left with nothing. The guys that took us out there There just been some miscommunication, but they didn't really speak English. So they said, okay, we're going out, but they didn't tell us. We assumed it was a day, and I I thought that they told us it was a day. And we kind of thought we were doing a big circle and coming back at the end of the night. But they just drove straight into the desert, and we got there. We literally spent a night, woke up in the morning. We're like, cool, like, let's go. And they're like, well,
0: we're here. Wait, what time of year is this?
1: August. So we just stayed. And they had kind of told us you could hitchhike home. They basically said if somebody comes by, just go with them. They'll take you back to the city. Well, like, this is one of the least densely populated places in the world. Nobody was coming by, so we stayed. And it wasn't like, uh, hey, you're here for a month, good luck. It was like, someone might come. Right. So every day, it was like, all right, well, we got to have our bags ready. Like, we got to, but it wasn't, it didn't happen. So were your
0: parents and family at all worried about you? I mean, I worry in my when I don't hear from my son in like a two days, and he's just at college, but I'm just kind of curious, what was that dynamic like? Well,
1: sure, you have similar experiences, but I have a very overbearing Jewish mother. So, yeah, she was worried. But I had negotiated this trip. I was going to be gone for a while, and I wasn't going to be able to be in constant communication. So, yeah, they were a little worried, but this was kind of pre-designed to a certain degree that I'd be traveling and not able to check in.
0: You have siblings or no?
1: I do, yeah. Technically, I'm one of six, but it's like step and half and all sorts of like stuff.
0: Like a Brady Bunch thing. Yeah, kind of. Right, but are you on the younger side of the six or the oldest side? Second oldest. Second yeah. oldest, okay. I was just curious how much they let you get away with, but it sounds like they're open-minded enough to let you spread your wings, as they say. So tell me a little bit about tacoon. Did I say that right? Yeah, yeah. So that was a fashion brand, that I feel like had a rebirth recently. Am I getting that right somewhat?
1: For sure. So, well, I'll back up a second to kind of qualify all of this. Cause I think it's important for people to kind of understand where it comes from. So not has been growing and it's become a big business. And, I had the opportunity to meet with kind of one of the idols in this industry, someone that I looked up to for a long time. He had started multiple multi-billion dollar businesses over the past 20 years. And I met him and it kind of like opened up my eyes to a much bigger picture. Where I had been laser focused on building Notum and that brand, ultimately what he showed me was my experiences were transferable across the industry. That what I was representing were... Universal to a certain degree, like those values were universal, and that multiple brands could be changed out across a platform.
0: So, this is the point you were making earlier about it being replicable, right? To a
1: certain degree, for sure. What he showed me was you shouldn't be thinking about your business, you should be thinking about your industry. And so, the lens got wider, and I started thinking about how I could inform changes in the industry over the next 10 years. That was very validating and motivating for me. And it felt like someone opened up a door for me personally and I could like just sprint through. And through those conversations, he sold me to Kuhn. He sold me the business. He'd owned it previously. And he basically very humbly said, Hey, I'm, I'm a little bit older. I don't know what the consumer wants
0: anymore. And who is this person? It's not Donald Trump. We know that.
1: I'm not going to say his name just because, uh, I don't want to expose him too much, but He's Googleable. Well, I was going to say we
0: can Google him, right? He's a mentor of mine in more ways than one, but. And I love the thought of don't focus only on your business, focus on the industry.
1: It changed my perspective.
0: I had Scott Tannen on from um, Bull and Brand. Yeah, he's a good dude. I like him. Great guy. And similar to you, though, he knew nothing about textiles. He gets on a plane, goes to India, realizes how oppressed and underserved and how the different populations and these farmers, cotton farmers, are getting taken advantage of. There's no fair trade, no such thing. And I always come back to eventually. There needs to be a groundswell It has to spark a movement totally. where the larger players, because even if it creates more competition for you, you don't care. You want there to be more competition. Totally, as long it's as not it's, proprietary. As long as it's fair yeah. and equitable. Agreed.
1: It's Scott, I've known Scott for a really long time. And I look up to him as well. He's had some incredible successes. But that idea of there's no like IP behind this, you don't patent your idea specifically, and it shouldn't be just the way that Elon Musk made all of his patents available because he wants the industry to change. That was a similar idea that like the things that we're doing are not, we shouldn't own that. And I remember I talked to investors early on and they'd say, well, like, what can you patent about this? Or like, what's the IP of the business? And I'd be like, they're just relationships. And it's about doing the right thing and not screwing everybody all the time. And if that means everybody can do that, I would tell you where I got my cash. When i give you all the facts about my supply chain If that means you can do it too, and we can have a bigger impact on the industry, then that's a good thing.
0: The IP is really equity and empathy. That's
1: the IP. It's that basic, right? No, it is. It is. If it was more complicated than that, I wouldn't be able to figure it out. Right. It's shared. Yeah. It's collective. When I met this guy, he showed me this bigger picture, and he sold me to Kuhn very humbly said, it's not for me to take to the next stage. You should be the one to do it. So we relaunched that business in September. The idea being Takun is an individual, he's a person. And for the past 10 years or over 10 years, he's been a well-known designer in the fashion industry, somebody who has is one very well regarded, but also recognized as a pretty special talent. And I didn't know anything about designers, to be honest with you. And we got introduced and we hit it off. He's very left brain and right brain, which means he's practical, but also creative.
0: Quite unusual to have the two in one person.
1: And so I just re-strategized the business based on where I thought the market was. Let's go lower in cost. Let's go better in quality. And let's go direct consumer. And let's kind of own this relationship and make really good stuff at a good price. You lead with your design vision. I'm not going to cloud that. It's what you think. You have that. I'll just strategize it and position it the right way. So we relaunched that around the same time I started talking to the folks at Something Navy and none of this was planned. I like didn't have this mapped out Didn't have like a strategy for it, but I was open to it. I had just opened my mind and these opportunities kind of flowed in, saw a similar situation in that I felt like I could provide some strategy and overall business positioning for something that I recognized as potentially very valuable for the industry moving forward. This idea of influence, developing brand I think is going to change the apparel industry and consumer industry over the next 10 years, pretty dramatically as costs for acquiring customers and brand development increase because it's become so easy. Anybody can do it to a certain degree that the people who have actually built it built real community, meaning that like you can say, Hey, I'm here. Come meet me. And a thousand people show up. That's power. That's influence. It's real. And there are a lot of things that aren't real. So I recognize that that was very special I could just apply some of the information and learnings I'd developed over the years to this specific situation, recognizing that one's gonna cost a lot less because you don't have to buy all your customers. And all those simple things like making product, all the things that we had learned very heuristically over the years, we could apply with a lot of certainty and people and information and process and infrastructure.
0: So that was a marriage and kind of platformed all of this stuff. And the rise of affiliate marketing. Which I think ultimately does help the consumer as long as everything's disclosed. You talk about timing. Timing is good for that as well, right?
1: I think timing is everything. The smartest people I know have told me that like you could do everything right, but it's like if you're not there at the right time, right place, it just won't work. And that's the luck part. Totally. My theory, my thesis about all of this is I just want to be up at bat longer. I just want to stay up at bat. I want to get enough pitches. So eventually I can go get one right down the plate. And hopefully by then I'm going to be able to swing and hit a home run.
0: That's it. Well, I feel like you've probably have a few home runs at this point. I mean a grand slam. Yeah. Sorry. That's okay. That's (laughs) all right. It's all good. So you're already obviously very young, but if you could tell your younger self, give your younger self a piece of advice, what you would do differently, what would that be?
1: I didn't want to listen to anybody. I needed to make mistakes on my own. I needed to like feel the pain of certain failures.
0: And you didn't want help from anybody, right? I didn't listen to anybody. Like it didn't matter,
1: but it resulted in some big mistakes, some painful stuff that I still have to answer for. And, you know, I think that's part of that growing experience. But if I could go back in time, there are definitely certain things I'd say, just listen. Like they're giving you the
0: answer. Just listen to them. Is there anybody you want to apologize to on air? My mom. That love is unconditional. You know that. Yes, of course. <laughs> Hindsight's
1: always twenty twenty, So it's easy to point fingers and say, well, I could have listened to that. I could have listened to this, but I don't know. Everything happens for a reason. It's so funny. I've like definitely turned into one of those CEOs that's uh, like, you know, just flow with the river and like everything will work itself out. And sometimes I hear myself and I'm like, you're such a loser, but I do believe everything kind of happens for a reason. And yeah
0: just go with it. It'll work itself out. Do you watch Black Mirror? I do. Yeah. Like that one, I think it was called Smithereen where it's the CEO. I can't remember if it was a Jude Law. I can't remember. He's like on the quiet mountaintop in this little house whatever. Yeah. It's like that. Was that Tobey Maguire? Tobey Maguire. Sorry. Yeah. They all, he's got the man bun, you know, the whole thing, right? He's meditating. My God! Don't be that guy. No, you're not. No, I don't think so. And shout out to your mom because I think she clearly did an amazing job raising you. It's so funny. So we have a
1: brand now. I haven't really spoken about but it's exclusively for QVC. You know QBC QVC is? Of course. Yeah. I'm not that old. Well, I don't know. And I go on. I'm the TV host on QVC. It's hysterical. If you want to like really laugh out loud at somebody, watch me on QVC. So I go on like every weekend to sell. And like you you have a shtick when you go on. What do you sell? Women's sweaters.
0: Okay. (laughs) Yeah
1: every time i'm on i'm like what am i doing here they're like tell us your story man. And i'm like i don't know why the hell i'm here but like hey mom i made it and she watches every time you she's like your mom
0: sell the sweaters
1: honestly she I does if good. she was here right now she'd be selling you on
0: everything right. in this room right she's walking up and down the westport it's like a shopping strip a very high end <laughs> you kidding me it's like greenwich avenue she yeah.
1: sells me everywhere she goes
0: that's really funny. Uh, you know
1: jewish mother
0: Matt, we can probably go on for a very long time, but it's so great and so inspiring to have you on. And not just for me, but I think for everyone who listens, as well as the folks in this room who are looking at you, I think in great awe right now, a thumbs up. And I know now where to find you. So not just following all these different ventures, which we will list when we promote the show, but also we can find you on QVC on the weekend selling women's sweaters. I love that. That's me. Thanks, man.
1: Thanks for having me. This has been an episode of
0: Brand On Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always-on-point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com, follow our Instagram at theboppodcast.com, and learn more about our host at aaronquickin.com.